This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Tapp, Portfolio Manager at New Perspective. Ryder is a chartered financial analyst and holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Your emergency fund is our topic today. How large should your fund be? Where should you keep your emergency fund? And what is a financial emergency and what isn't? In addition to talking about emergency funds, we're looking for your personal finance questions that Ryder can help you with this morning. Contact us by email. The address, it's money at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson is out today. We are going to be talking about emergency funds today. Uh, also, uh, when we get Ryder on the line here, we had a call last week about um, what happens to your credit score if you don't have uh, an, any debt or any credit record to go off, and I believe Ryder has done uh, some research on that, so we'll be able to talk about that in just a minute as well. Good morning, Ryder. What financial news are you thinking about this week? Good morning, Kevin. Uh, there are uh, just a couple of things. One of the the economic news items that we looked at a month or so ago and is has been an issue for a long, long time and has started to become something I watch a lot more is, is, is housing, and uh, specifically housing construction, housing starts, housing permits, et cetera. For a long time, one of the hallmarks of our recovery out of the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, was that it was – that did start in the housing market with the housing bubble. There was some overproduction. There was a lot more housing activity than you would expect, but it led to very muted housing uh, construction. And here's the thing. People got to live somewhere. Um, There are more people being born and uh, moving out of their parents' houses every day. They don't move out of the parents' houses the day they're born, but it happens a little bit afterwards is what I hear. but there's there's more people need more houses, you know, old houses they fall apart. We need more houses. And one of the things I was worried about a couple weeks ago is that permits had kind of dropped off. We were worried that maybe this was a, a bigger slowdown. It looks like we are still on trend. Uh so not not the not the mad rush of building houses that I would hope for the, to, to make houses more affordable. The more houses we build, hopefully, the more affordable they will be. But uh, it does not look like it's going to be disastrous there. So uh, housing is back on trend, it looks like. So I would assume with, uh, with housing sort of back on trend, as you were saying, that maybe that material shortage uh, that we were dealing with earlier uh, has eased just a bit. Do you know if that's the case? Yes, I think in a lot of cases, you're absolutely right. Building materials had kind of skyrocketed as you know, when factories kind of idled last year because people didn't expect there to be a lot of building. And then you know all of the all of the supply of lumber, all of the supply of drywall and nails uh, got got sucked up as people wanted to remodel or build new houses. As people moved out of New York, and we needed to the rest of the country needed to figure out where to put these people, and we decided we would put them in houses. Um, that is easing. It is easing slowly. I know the price of lumber has kind of given up all of those, uh, that that steep climb that it went on last year. It's back down to 2019 prices. Uh, if anyone is sitting around remembering how much they paid for a 2x4 in 2019, then you're back there. So a lot of that is easing up, and 
you know, if Nancy were here, she would certainly be talking about the labor market aspect of it. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that treat for her later. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you came on the air with us uh, last week. We had a caller wondering, if you don't have any debt, how low your credit score would go. And you did some research on that for us. What did you find out? So it's a bit weird, and I didn't find any super definitive answers. But there's 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 a lot more to it than just, oh, my credit score went down to zero. So, well, it doesn't go down to zero. It just kind of... It seems to just disappear, and one of the things I was surprised by was uh, people reporting that it seemed to disappear a lot faster than they would have expected it to. For instance, after a couple of years, last last week we talked about how things usually roll off your credit score after about seven years. So just because you paid off a credit card doesn't mean it disappears from your score. It doesn't mean that all of that, that good credit that you've built up by paying it on time, if you close that card, it doesn't go away. You still get that good credit uh, for several years. But what folks were reporting is that it, after even as little as two or three years, their credit was going away in some way. But I think one of the important things to remember is you have a credit score, which is a calculation based on what all is there, a calculation based on your utilization of credit, a calculation based on how much your on-time payment history, a calculation based on how much credit you are offered and what type of credit you are offered. And the score, that top-line number, is important, but lenders do also look at other factors. They look at how much you have. If you have a great score, but it is just because you had a single credit card and paid $10 on it every month, then that's not nearly as impressive as you had a mortgage and a car loan and several credit cards and a revolving line of credit that you you also stayed on top of every month. It's much more impressive to manage that more complex bundle of credit, so to speak. So your credit score can get thinner and thinner, and that can be enough to make it to make you an unattractive, or, or maybe just lenders are less inclined to lend to you because they're just not as clear on what your credit abilities are. That being said, that being said. Having a thin credit report or having a, you know, having your credit score just kind of dissolve off into the ether is a lot easier to come back from than a bad credit score. If you have a bad credit score, you have a lot of bad things, a lot of missed payments, a lot of overstretched credit lines weighing down on your score, and it's going to take a lot of good stuff to make up for it. First, you got to make do a lot of good stuff just to neutralize it, and then you got to bring it back up. If you have just a thin credit score, getting just a little, a little bit more just to beef it up a little will probably do the trick. Uh, and also in the email you sent to Liz Gill, producer of the show, and I the other day, uh, you mentioned uh, the ways that people that don't have an exhaustive credit history uh, can improve their score in uh, several proprietary ways. One that I've heard on the air and that you mentioned is that Experian Boost. What's the theory behind that type of program? Yes, so that's an interesting thing. People talk all the time about, oh, I pay my rent on time, I pay my utilities on time, I pay my Netflix bill on time. Why doesn't that count towards on-time payments? 
Well, traditionally, of course, they haven't. These are not really represented as debts. Um, you know, you do not owe a large amount to Netflix. You haven't necessarily committed to these monthly subscriptions, but they do represent habits and behavior and and the credit score does try to say are do they have good credit behaviors and so as more and more research shows that yes if you can keep up with you know your utility bills and your rent and and things like that then then yes you do have good credit behaviors and you are a good credit risk so Experian Boost is one that is actually run by Experian and you can sign up and add those sorts of things to it i, I and and let me be clear i don't know exactly how this works so please do not not call asking for the itty bitty inane details of that. But there are also there are also some larger landlords, especially if you have a corporate landlord who may be reporting rent to credit agencies. Often that is I've read that is something that you have to opt into. So you can always check with those rent and utilities and subscription providers and see if they do any credit reporting, see if they offer that at all. And of course, if you think you're very good at paying your rent on time, then absolutely, you sign up for that. It will probably add something. I suspect that it does not have as much weight as other traditional debt bank relationships. And also, it only affects a certain credit score. Keep in mind, you have more than just a score. There are a handful of different, slightly different calculations. You know, different credit score might, one might weight credit cards more, one might weight your mortgage more. And so, different lenders will look at different scores, and also the credit uh, companies uh, charge different amounts to different lenders. So, so. It may not that may not be the score that a particular lender looks to, but in general, it, it should it, it should help. It and, and over time, it should trickle out as as you apply to places that do look at that. If I have a question for Ryder, you can send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We're going to continue our discussion of emergency funds after the break. How can you save money for your emergency fund? We'll have one way for you next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. 
information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. You're listening to Money Talks. The website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past Money Talks broadcasts. You can also download the MPB Public Media app and listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. If you're looking for ways to save money for an emergency fund, you might consider listening back to the Money Talks podcast from February 23rd of this year when we talked about free items. So we're going to be talking today about what an emergency fund is and when to use it. We're looking for your personal finance questions as well. So, Ryder, let's start out very simply. What is an emergency fund? Emergency funds are one of the most boring but common topics in personal finance because it's kind of where you start. And it's it's the most common one because it is where you start. You, you, we don't really recommend you do a whole lot else until you have an emergency fund or a clear you're on the you're on a path to building up a good emergency fund, etc. It's the most boring one because it's just cash sitting in a bank. And I know there was at some point in my life when we had interest rates at banks, but nowadays you could have a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, and your bank statement will come and say, "Oh, I made, I made two cents this month or two cents this." year on interest. It's just not exciting. It sits there and, and you see other things going on. You see things you can buy and you think this this money could be so much more exciting in so many other places. But the point of an emergency fund is it allows you the freedom to go out in the world and do the rest of those things. It allows you to go out and, and buy things for your house, buy things for yourself. It allows you to go out and invest and stick away a lot of your money in your in your retirement account and watch that grow and grow and grow over the years. It allows you to do all these things and take other financial risks knowing that if worse comes to worse, you have money to take care of yourself you know in in an emergency. And talking about what an emergency looks like, you know, is it just that you lost your job and you need some money to span the next few months while you search for a job? Is it a medical emergency where you have a lot of medical bills, you have an insurance deductible to pay? Is it a car wreck, which may have some medical bills as well, but you need a new car? Or just your car needs fixing up or a, a limb falls on your house. Emergencies can be anything, and they can come from anywhere, and, and it doesn't have to be even just in your life. Natural disasters, disasters within the family, you have to drop everything and go take care of a family member. Anything can happen, and when you know you have that money sitting there, boring as anything, in the bank to back you up when when – it worse comes to worse, then it, you you have a lot more freedom in your daily life. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about uh, building your emergency fund, but we always look for your personal finance questions as well. And we've got a caller on the line. Uh, Fletch has called in this morning. Good morning. What do you have for us today? Uh, 
well, I know Ryder's not a CPA, but I had a question just in case he has some uh, experience or input. Okay. Uh, and I'm asking for a friend. Got it. Uh, so, so this friend had $10,000 worth of uh, fraudulent unemployment um, claimed against the state of Mississippi in actually – Actually, it was uh, it was in 2020. Um, legit piece of paperwork from MD Mississippi Department of Employment Security. Put it in the stack of stuff to take the CPA. CPA processes the tax uh, return and says, "Well, you didn't get a return because you're ten thousand dollars in unemployment." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Or that guy said, "What are you talking about?" So, bottom line, um, fraudulent oh. tax return got that straightened out. Um, there was, uh, you know, somewhat negligible, like a $65 refile charge for the uh -huh. CPA. Whose responsibility is it to verify all documents handed over to the CPA? So let me let me try to kind of make sure I got this clear. Someone had filed an, an unemployment claim in your friend's name. And so the unemployment office sent him a, a, it's a 1099 of some sort, and he just he saw his tax form. He included that, but it was not his, he he was not the living, breathing human who had done that application. Someone had done it using his name and social. Is that what I'm? Is that correct? Do I have that correct. right? Correct. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's tough. So, and then I guess he was able to sort that out. Maybe he went back to the unemployment commission and yes. got them to correct that. Yeah. Mm. I, I would say probably most CPAs are not in the business of verifying all of the forms that they're given. And in fact, you know, a CPA relies on the client to bring them all of this stuff. You know, if you have, say you have three investment accounts and you only give your CPA two of your forms, they're not necessarily in the – they don't necessarily know about that third one. You know, if you bring them three forms every year and then one year you only bring them two, a good CPA would probably – Compare it to last year's return and say, hey, just uh, just uh, want to point out you had three tax forms last year. You only brought me two this year. Are we missing one? Did we close the account? What happened with that? Sure. Uh, so that thing they might notice, but again, they have no way of going through just the world of folks who are, could possibly send you a tax form and, and making sure you have the correct ones. So I'm guessing as well, knowing that you have knowing that one of them is incorrect. I would say, you know, maybe a CPA would notice, oh, hey, you have an unemployment 1099, but you were also employed the entire year. I can tell you were employed by looking at your W-2. That might be something a CPA could catch, but as far as responsibility, you know, in the professional services, we really rely a lot on clients bringing us accurate and complete information. And you know, it can be very hard to to make sure we've got all of that, but yeah, I'm not really sure if, if the responsibility really falls on the individual. And ultimately, the individual is responsible for making sure their taxes are are true and correct. Yeah, yeah, I figured the individual had a lot of responsibility. I did notice, though, uh, there was a due diligence. Uh, form attached to the tax return about 
the preparer going through some due diligence. So, yeah, I mean, and again, that's one of those things where, uh, and a lot of CPAs or, or tax preparers have something like that. They say, oh, you know, were you employed for the whole year? Who was your employer? You know, did you have. Did you have investment accounts? Did you do contract work? That sort of thing so that they can try to make sure they have a complete picture there. But again, if somebody gives them a form, for the most part, they're probably going to assume it's correct without any major red flags. And to your point, I think it is it is something that, that, it, that someone should be able to notice, especially if this person was employed all year, the CPA doesn't have any reason to believe they weren't employed all year. Having a filing from the Unemployment Commission would be a little weird. It, would ra- it should at least raise one question, and that question is, did you actually have un- unemployment income this year? So, so that is odd, uh, but it, they they do have ways of catching that. But it's it's not it's not going to be foolproof. Yeah, I may at least encourage my friend to ask for at least half relief on the refiling fee. Yeah, I think that is 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 fair, especially where you small fees like that are involved, and and also look at did the was that a refiling fee with that they that the CPA themselves charged or right? Yeah, on on something like that, you, you can always work with that services provider to 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 see if they will uh, be a little understanding there. Because, yes, ultimately, I do think it's the responsibility of the person, of, of the taxpayer, of, the, of, of your friend providing those forms. But, again, you know, we are all human, and we, we all make mistakes. And also, this was not a mistake of your – it wasn't – I mean, it was identity theft. It was identity fraud. It was, it was not a mistake that your, your friend made. Yes, he should have caught that. Yes, the CPA should have caught that. But I I think just kind of a a human-to-human, look, we understand this shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't be happening in the future. One of the reasons the CPA might charge a refiling fee is just so that you don't get in the habit of messing it up every single year. And this is clearly just a case where, oh, this is not going to happen again. So, you know, waive that fee, give a discount on that fee. I think it, we're all human beings, and, and, and a little understanding and, and sympathy and grace goes a long way. All right, Fletch, thanks for the yeah. call. Uh, and I would say your th- uh, idea of the half seas seems to be a good idea to me of, you know, um, because maybe some shared responsibility, so shared uh, on the cost of that refiling fee. So we appreciate your call. So, Ryder, uh, which comes first, building up your emergency fund, paying off personal debt, or should you try to do a little bit of both at the same time? Oh, wow. So I wrote down both, or it depends. Of course, if you have very high interest personal debt, if you have a credit card with a 24% interest, the impact of paying that down is going to be so much more dramatic than just sitting savings aside. So I would say if you have very high interest debt, that is going to be a priority maybe slightly above setting aside emergency savings. But I do want to point out, I do want to point out that having no debt and no cash is a worse situation than having 
you know, $1,000 of debt and $1,000 of cash. In the second scenario, at least you have $1,000 of cash that you can spend if you do have an emergency. So, if the debt is an okay rate, if it isn't punitive, if it doesn't have an impending huge payment coming up, then that's okay debt, and I think you should also you should focus on building that emergency savings at the same time. If the debt is super high, super punitive, that is almost an emergency itself, and you should absolutely be tackling that. And I would say if you do have a lot of high interest credit card debt, there are probably a lot of other things in your life that you need to be tightening down on and working on working with the credit card company to get that reduced, maybe get that on a more reasonable payment plan. We've talked about that before. A lot of credit card companies now have kind of built-in payment plan opportunities, which, which work out to a, a decent interest rate personal loan, but sometimes it's not so much that it's a lower interest rate, but they just give you more reasonable terms. And that might be something that's helpful. But but building up that cash, building up some emergency savings is, is still a, a top priority, absolutely. We'll continue our discussion of emergency funds in just a bit. Do you need some more ideas on how to save money to fund that emergency fund? We've got another suggestion for you coming up. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Money Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. Ryder is a chartered financial analyst who holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Maybe hard to save up cash for an emergency fund, but if you go back and listen to the Money Talks uh, podcast from July 28, 2020, you'll get some money-saving tips that might help. Uh, we have a caller on the line, so let's do that first. We'll talk to Randy, who's called in from Woodville. Good morning, Randy. Uh, good morning. I have a question about uh, our credit scores, and if it's true that uh, the credit reporting agencies base part of your score on where you live, is there still area profiling of communities that have money that, and don't have money? And I'll listen to your answer on the radio. <laughs> Oh wow, this uh, that is a big question with uh, Im, uh, important historical implications. 
And, uh, thank you for that question, Randy. I do not believe that the credit score has any – I don't believe any credit score, any credit score formula has any geographical implications uh, on it. One thing, if we want to kind of take a bigger, broader step back in history, look at this, is there used to be a practice of one one of the geographical credit issue practices is called redlining, where uh, certain people, notably black people, any other minorities were not allowed to get mortgages in certain areas. And so that is certainly an area where in the past lenders have looked at factors other than just your ability to repay. They were looking at race. They were looking at geography. They were they were using it to keep certain people out of certain areas or keep certain people in certain areas. So it kind of went both ways there. And that is not something that is using – there's no geographical calculation to credit score. There's no, oh, well, you live in the fancy neighborhood, so therefore your credit is higher. What I will say is there and, – and there are federal protections to stop uh, things like that from happening. What I will say is with a lot of newer lenders – I worry sometimes that practices like that may be creeping in when you hear about a, a new online bank that says, oh, we use big data and all sorts of data sets and math and science to predict your uh, credit, to predict how much we can loan you, to predict if we should lend to you. Sometimes then they're running into a risk because if their model just says, oh, well, folks from this zip code typically have a lower credit score or, or are typically lower, lower value credit customers or typically declare bankruptcy more, maybe there's more bankruptcies in this, in this community, then no matter how good your credit score is, they may, they may have that as a factor. That wouldn't, again, that would not be a factor on your credit score. But again, lenders do look at things, not just that number, also that deeper list, but also it is possible that a lender might, might take geography into account in some way. And I'm not really sure what the federal protections on just geographic considerations are. If we have a lender listening who knows more about that, uh, I would love to hear about it. Thanks, Randy, for your phone call. We do have some open phone lines. If you have a question this morning, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 You can email money at mpbonline.org. So, you know, Ryder, sometimes an emergency fund is referred to as a rainy day fund. So using that analogy, my question is, how do you know when it's sprinkling outside versus there's a severe thunderstorm? <laughs> I was wondering where that analogy was going to go. So uh, there's a difference between, I, th I think, one thing to think about. Let's talk about, oh, a car. So there's a difference between just your regular everyday stuff, your regular maintenance, getting your oil changed, putting gas in your car. That is not emergency fund stuff. If you are having to dip into your emergency fund for regular maintenance, then you are your car expense is simply too high. Or perhaps you need to find somewhere else to cut back in your budget. Those are things that really need to be paid out of income. Replacing a new car 
because of something that is is totally not your responsibility, or even if it's a predictable thing, my car is 10 years old and it completely fell apart. My car is 10 years old and I incurred $2,000 worth of, of, of engine repair that's just simply beyond me and I need this car to get to work. That's more of a, a thunderstorm situation, whereas well, I'm two weeks late on my oil change. That is, uh, you need to find that money in your budget. So uh, housing things, you know, it's pretty clear if a tree falls on your house or something major happens. But if it's just, you know, my toilet is running or my kitchen sink is a little link, leaky, then that's that's more maintenance type things. Oh, I need to I need to put a new coat of paint on the outside. That that is maintenance type stuff. And again, the the distinction between maintenance and emergencies is that maintenance it really that is that is simply a cost of owning that home. That is a very expected common cost of owning that home or owning that car or having that lifestyle. And those costs you need to be able to budget for. Emergencies very often involve something that is just beyond beyond your control is one good indication. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio, and we've got another caller on the line. So this time we're going to say good morning to Ron calling in from Brandon. Hi, Ron. You're on the air with us. Please have your radio turned down when you talk to us. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. First of all, let me tell you, I'm 70 years old, and I'm probably in an enviable situation to a lot of people. My house is paid for, my car is paid for, and I have about $20,000 in an emergency fund. Um, my lifestyle is very modest, and I have managed to outlive all my ex-wives, so I think I'm ahead of the game there. Uh, do I need to worry about having a credit score at this age in my life and everything, or should I just carry on the way I'm doing? That is a question we get all the time. Do I need to worry about having a credit score? And the reason that comes up most of the time is folks your age talking about freezing their credit. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, so two things. One, if you maintain any credit cards or want to maintain any credit cards, then yes. And if you are maintaining a credit card for your regular spending, then you're going to have a credit score. I'm not super concerned about that. If you ever do need to buy a car on a loan, then you may need a credit score. It, it doesn't sound like that's going to be too big of an issue for you uh, to be able to afford a new car. Uh, if your spending is on a credit card, like I said, you'll already have a credit score. Um, so it's not as big of an issue, obviously, during the part of someone's life when they are buying a new home, looking towards buying a new home, spending a lot more than that is when it's an issue. I know a lot of people kind of look down on credit cards or say, oh, at my age, I don't need a credit card. It is still a very good financial budgeting management tool. As long as you're not spending more than you can afford, then it's a great tool. And if you are ever looking to move again, I know if you, you're 70 years old, you're not planning on moving, but anything can happen. To the cemetery. To the cemetery is my you're next You're only move. planning on moving to the cemetery. Okay. Well, in that case, it doesn't sound like there's any need for a credit score in your future. 
it does not hurt to maintain a credit score. So, for instance, if you have a credit card, if you just have a credit card and use it just a little bit for you know some of your some of your daily expenses and make sure it gets paid off, it wouldn't hurt to maintain that, but. It, it doesn't look like you have a whole lot of need for it in the future necessarily. Well, I have one credit card, and I have a part-time gig, and I use the credit card for expenses on my part-time gig. So I charge about $500 a month on my credit card, but I pay it off every two weeks. Is that okay, mm -hmm. or do I need to... Yeah, that's okay. You're going to have a very good credit score because you are genuinely using that card, and $500, I'm guessing, is probably nowhere near the credit limit on that card. So you're you're going to have a good utilization ratio. You're going to have a good payment history. Uh, paying every two weeks is, is aggressive. You, as long as you pay it once a month before the interest charges kick in, then 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 you're good. And and that's a great way to maintain a credit score, no matter what your age. So everybody can listen to Ron over here and put $500 on their credit card and pay it off. All right, Ron, thanks for calling in this morning. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. And I guess, Ryder, anybody that has any kind of open credit, whether they really want one or not, does have a credit score. Am I right? I mean, you might not need it for anything, but you, you still have one. Generally speaking, yes, uh, because most banks, most credit cards are going to be reporting that credit to to a credit bureau, so yes. There are instances, I think more and more places are reporting to credit scores. There are instances I've heard of some lenders who who don't report everything to the credit bureaus because there's no there's no like law on you must report every single credit transaction to a credit company. It's just a thing that is done so they can all participate in this credit system and have pretty good knowledge about their 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 customers. But there are some lenders who may not report something. Maybe if you take out a loan at some banks, they may report that you took it out, but they're not necessarily going to report every payment that you make to it. Maybe they'll just report it at the end. But generally speaking, if you have some sort of credit product, then yes, you will have a credit score. And like we discussed at the top of the show, that can run out, that can get thin. So what Ron may have, he may have a fairly thin credit report, just having one card on it. I don't know how long that's been the case, but it can get a little thin. But it's, it's, it's most likely in his case, it's still there. Uh, before our next break, a quick uh, personal story. I really got serious about an emergency fund a couple of years ago, and quite honestly, from being the host of this show and listening to you and Nancy and uh, Chris Burford, who we had on years ago on the show, uh, to do it, uh, with the, the thing that got me was to pay yourself first when you get your, your check. And so I was able to carve out a plot on my uh, monthly budget for uh, building up an emergency fund. And to me, the I don't know if fun is the right word, but the exciting part about it is is you can watch it grow. It's in there the first couple of times you put money and it doesn't look like anything. But if you sort of set it and forget it, when you go back and look, it's it's kind of fun and exciting to see how much you've stockpiled in that emergency fund. So I would encourage folks out there, you know, dip your toe in, get into it, get into that habit, and I think you'll uh, you'll be happy with yourself and rewarded uh, later when you when you do run into an emergency. We'll finish up talking about emergency funds after this last break. How could you make a little extra money to fund your emergency fund? Another suggestion for you coming up. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio.
Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. We're glad you found our show, Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. And here's a reminder, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio immediately following Money Talks. If saving extra money is hard for you, consider ways to increase your income. Maybe you should join the gig economy. We talked about that on our April 30th, 2019 Money Talks podcast. Uh, so, Ryder, I talked a little bit about, uh, before the break, about building my emergency fund that I was able to carve out a spot in my budget. And to do that, though, you got to know where your money's going in the first place. Absolutely. The the first step to budgeting or getting a grip on your spending and savings pattern is knowing where that money goes. I guarantee you if you just stop anybody on the street, including yourself, and say, how much did you spend last month? And can you give me even just some broad categories of where that money went? They would be off by a significant amount of money. While I keep in my head, I know I know how much my mortgage, I know some very specific things. I have a very good idea how much my electric bill is every month. I get a text about that. I know how much my mortgage payment is. It's been the same for years and years and years. And I know a lot of specific some things, but not necessarily how much did I spend last month, what were my major categories. And so just sitting down and looking through what did I actually spend. And sometimes folks want to categorize that in, oh, this was spent on dining out. This was spent on groceries. This was spent on shoes. This was spent on uh, TV type things, internet subscriptions, etc. You can also categorize them more loosely. I like categorizing things as things that you absolutely have to spend and those are pretty much fixed and you've done what you can with them and that's things like housing, rent, or mortgage. You can't really change your mortgage payment all that much. I mean, you can refinance as a much bigger project, but you're kind of locked into that. Your electric and utility bills, while you do have some control, you can turn more lights off. I kind of assume that you're doing your best there anyway, and and turning a few lights off or letting the water run a little less isn't necessarily going to have that dramatic an impact on your overall budget. So those are pretty fixed, and you can just think of those as those are happening, and I wouldn't really expect them to jump up or down. And then there's things like gas and groceries, which you have a little more control over. You could be a little smarter about your driving, planning trips out a little better. You can plan your meals a little better, eat a little cheaper. But those are things that 
it's a part of your budget. It's always going to be there. You can't you can't not have gas and groceries. You've got to eat. You've got to go to work. Uh, I suppose you could cut it out totally if you worked remotely. Good for you. Fantastic. But then there's the last category of much, much, much more discretionary items, You things that you don't have to spend every month, but you want to. You don't have to have Netflix every month, but it's, it's okay if you want to. I'm not going to stop you from having that. You don't have to buy new things in your house. You don't have to buy this, that, and the other. You're going out budget, entertainment budget. You don't have to go watch a new movie. You don't have to go out to eat. And when you go out to eat, you do not have to order the you know, second most expensive thing on the menu. You can, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not trying to be critical of someone who, who does that. I'm just saying that isn't a part of your budget where it's very discretionary. If you really needed to find money quickly, you could cut money out of that a lot easier than you could cut it out of your grocery bill and a heck of a lot easier than cutting it out of your mortgage bill. So, yes, getting a grip on what you're doing uh, looking back at several months spending and making a habit for at least a few months of just very being very conscious about your spending and being very conscious about looking back every month on what you did spend and, and roughly categorizing it. it really helps and makes it easier to remember and think about from month to month. All right, Ryder, got a couple of minutes left in the show. So folks uh, listening, maybe they've uh, heeded our advice. They're going to start a, 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 um, an emergency fund. They've kind of carved out place in their budget. Well, now they need a place to stick the funds that will be in their emergency fund. So what are your suggestions? So classically, I would say have a bank account that is linked to your regular checking account. Your checking account is probably where your regular spending comes through. Either you have a debit card, you're taking money out of the ATM, maybe that's where your rent payments, your mortgage, your credit cards all come through or paid through through a checking account. Have one that is linked to that so you can move money back and forth. This is especially important for getting started. If you could set up a regular draft from the checking to the savings account, it does not have to be at the same bank. I am a big fan of using an online bank that may offer different services. They may offer a little bit higher interest rate. They may offer some features. But importantly, it's just a little bit out of sight, out of mind, but it's still accessible. That's going to be important. So you can have high-yield savings or money market accounts. Sometimes people will use CDs at banks. One of the tricky things there is that's a little more appropriate when you have a larger account already built up and kind of laddering CDs, so there's always one coming due and there's always some cash there. But one of the hard parts, especially when you're just getting started, is you are locking that money up. And if you're just getting started, it may not make sense. The advantage there is they do offer you a little bit higher interest rate. So those are some good places, but typically I, I try to say don't get too fancy with these. Just get a savings account at a bank. Make it a little bit hard to access, but make sure you can access it. Yeah, I've actually got uh, two sort of emergency fund savings account. One is a local uh, at a local branch. One is uh, online, so it's a little harder to get to. But then if I need quick access, I've got something uh, that I can go to a local branch and get that there. So uh, that is going to wrap 
wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from you. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit moneytalks.mpbonline.org. Or you can listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your preferred podcasting app. Our show is produced by Liz Gill, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Ryder Taff, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to join us every Tuesday at 9 a.m. for Money Talks. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. podcast.